Sabbath blessings. I have an announcement. I have an announcement before we dig into the scroll of Ezekiel, the first of the 13 scrolls. We're still going through it. It is an amazing revelation. And we're going to begin our text today in Ezekiel chapter 14, what it's called chapter 14 in the King Jimmy or the Masoretic text, but it is still the first scroll that Ezekiel delivered to the house of Israel in exile as he was encamped by the river Chebar in Babylon, receiving 13 visions that he disseminated after writing down in 13 Revelation scrolls. We have a great announcement to make, and that is Sukkot 2018, Yah willing, we are going to be hosting, and we have a survey that we'd love you online to partake of. It's available at TorahToTheTribes.com on the homepage of our website. We'd love you to fill out that survey before this Monday so that we can get a feel for the community's response, expectations, and hope for keeping the Festival of Tabernacle Sukkot this year. So please go to our webpage, TorahToTheTribes.com, and take that survey. Don't procrastinate, because we want to congregate. You like that, didn't you? All right, let's go to Ezekiel, Yechezkel, very Hebraic. Yehezkel, Ezekiel chapter 14. We're going to start off looking at what's called chapter 14. But remember, these are the 13 scrolls. This is scroll one, the first vision. Yahuwah is going to be communicating through the prophet and what we call in the King James chapter 14. Yahuwah's four evil judgments And then followed up by the righteous trio, of course, Noah, Daniel, and Job. As we get into chapter 15, which is still contained within the first scroll, we're going to get into the parable of the fruitless grapevine. The parable of the fruitless grapevine. And then chapter 16, I hope to be able to get into that today, still within this first vision and scroll. Jerusalem is personified as a girl who grows from infancy to a wayward maturity. What you would not hope for your daughters. What you would not pray for your daughters. Ezekiel chapter 14 verse 1. And some of the elders of Israel, they came to me and sat before me. So we've got a group of elders that came to Ezekiel. So he was going into their community, relaying the vision writing it down in a scroll and then handing it to them. And now they're responding. They're coming to Ezekiel as he is by the river Chebar in response to his prophetic message thus far. And so far, what has he been doing? He's been lambasting the false prophets and the false prophecies that have been going forth, which these elders were listening to. They were listening to the wrong voice. They were listening to the wrong voice and they were making huge mistakes in their life. And Ezekiel now 
is dealing with this group and verse 2 and the word of Yahweh came to me saying son of man Ben Adam these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put stumbling block of their iniquity before their face should I at all be inquired by them they wanted to pray to Yahweh but they weren't sincere in their prayers They came, sure, as one united group, but they had wicked intentions. How many times have we seen that? A council of wickedness. They come in one united group, but they have wicked intentions. Yahushua taught us all about this at the Sermon on the Mount. Thoughts of idolatry are equivalent to actually worshipping idols. Thoughts of idolatry are actually equivalent to worshipping idols. Look at verse 4. Therefore, go speak to them and say to them, So says the Master Yahuwah, Every man of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart and puts the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and comes to the prophet, I, Yahuwah, will answer him in it, by the host of his idols, so that I may capture the house of Israel in their own heart, because they are estranged from me by their idols, all of them. Yahweh's response is that he already spoke these two commandments forbidding idolatry back at the mountain in Exodus chapter 20. But they didn't listen, did they? And they go, went on to forsake Yahweh by committing the abomination of the golden calf, which was, of course, idolatry. But Yahweh, he built the mitzvot, the commandments, with these two commandments forbidding idolatry in order to seize Israel for what was in their heart. Because ultimately, Yahweh is looking to see what is the motivating factor within us right and that's what Yahushua comes he comes to say yeah I hear what you're saying but look what's the motivating factor within your heart you see many people over the years have come to me as a minister with struggles I've done counseling and all kinds of stuff struggles with sin and I look back to the tabernacle you know I look back to the Torah and they would put that animal up on the altar and they would absolutely slay it dead and then they would incinerate it and the aroma would go up as a sweet fragrance into the nostrils of the creator but the problem that we've learned in our decadent society is that people pull out their pen knife they put their sin up on the altar and they give it a good nick and a good stabbing But they never fully slay the sin. So the sacrifice gets back up off the altar and it walks right back into their life. You have got to kill the sin. You have to hate it. You have to destroy it. You have to set up boundaries in your life so that it doesn't come back in. And none of us are without temptation. The devil wants to tempt you where Yahweh will cause it to be a test. 
And if we overcome the test and the temptation, then we will have a crown full of jewels to lay down at the master's feet. But the one thing that I learned from the very beginning of this walk is you've got to kill it. I have been delivered from so much iniquity in my life and truly, after repenting, have not gone back to it because I have absolutely hated it. And then... That's not enough. Set up boundaries and establish strongholds of righteousness so that there are no avenues back in. No avenues. And we teach our children the same thing. The same thing. You'll see us all walking through the mall like this. Because there's iniquity this way. Me and my boys. People look at us like, what the heck are they doing? Because I don't want them to struggle with what I struggled with when I was a youth. So we have to set up the boundaries. And and they've grown up that way. Oh my goodness. Right? We have to do that. We have responsibility. You've got to purge. You've got to purge. You've got to smash. You've got to destroy whatever it is that entices you. You've got to do it. You've got to purge it. You've got to smash it. You've got to destroy it. And then you have to construct those boundaries and walls to prevent the sin from coming upon your land ever again. And you know what it is. You know what it is. But you have to do what's right. Just like Israel, even good people. You're good people. You're good people. But even good people can be influenced by their neighbors and surroundings. And here, here in our text, even the converts, even the converts were among the idolaters, like dogs returning to their vomit. Look at verse 8. And I will set my face against that man and set him desolate for a sign and for a proverb and I will cut him off from the midst of my people and you shall know that I am Yahuwah now I love this the third letter in the Hebrew of the phrase and set him is the Hebrew letter shin and it has the same root as desolation desolation so what's the sign what's the sign What's the sign? The sign is making him desolate is the sign and the parable. That's the sign. It's making him desolate because of his iniquity. Making him desolate. Yahweh, we do it and set an example. Look at verse 9. And the prophet, if he is enticed and he speaks a word, I, Yahweh, have enticed that word prophet and I will stretch out my hand on him and will destroy him in the midst of my people Israel so a lot of people don't understand this Yahuwah created evil people be like hey how could you say so well do you believe that he's the creator do you believe there's evil in the world well how did it get here Yahuwah created evil Yahuwah created darkness Because Yahuwah entices and tests. The devil 
Satan tempts. There's a difference. There's a difference. He uses what's in your heart to entice you and to test you. Whereas Satan uses what's in your heart to tempt you and deceive you. One leads to ruin and destruction. The other leads to repentance and the glorification of the master through a holy and righteous life. We have a path to travel, but we have to overcome. And the moment that we think we've got it is the moment that we fall. We have to go back to our first love. We truly, truly do. The enticement that is spoken about right here in verse 9 is very important for us to understand. I like to call it, you know, I like to call things names and I like to number them. That's just the way that I think biblically. This is the enticement clause. This is what I understand as the enticement clause of the Bible. And by understanding it and breaking it down that way, and I kind of have a little note in my Bible, my Bible's marked up with lead everywhere. The enticement clause consists of exposing the evil and hypocrisy that people try to keep secret and entice people to continue to operate as they will freely so as to bring their personal schemes into the open. And when you walk with Yahuwah long enough and you stay faithful to him, eventually he will surround you and put a guard on you And if you press in long and hard enough with him and you overcome the tests and you overcome those things that could be used for evil if you gave in to the temptations, but you see it as a test, then Yahuwah brings in clarity of vision and eventually exposes those that have succumbed to temptation and evil by listening to the voices of falsehood. And it's amazing when you stand back and you get the clarity of distinction. But you have to be seasoned and you have to stay the course. And I see so many go to the left and so many go to the right because they moved and fell in temptation instead of aligning and recognizing testing. It's a difference. And you have got to have the spiritual eyes to see because Yahweh will allow the people eventually, if you press in, to expose themselves. He will allow the people to expose themselves as they truly are. Ones who merely pretend to be pious and holy while secretly sinning and operating with a corrupted agenda. And I have a long history now in ministry and knowing that you just have to endure. You just have to endure, not react. Stay calm and endure and it is a miracle, and then when you get through the testing, then what happens? You are, have got more strengthening, more conviction, more anointing, more calling, and it is then used for what? His glory. It is magnificent to stand on the other side once you've come through it. And this is a word of admonition to you all. 
As a witness, I stand here as a witness of truth that Yahuwah will deliver us when we're faithful. He will del- and he will expose the falsehood because this is the enticement clause of scripture. I know it well. I've seen people fall and fall and fall again and will again and again in the future because they didn't recognize this and they went into the temptation, temptation rather than embracing the testing. You've got to embrace it. And that's the difference that the prophet... There were two prophets at the time. We had Yehezkel who embraced what? Testing and the false prophet that embraced the temptation. And didn't have the discernment to tell between the two because they are very similarly aligned with deafening different results. The inquirer right here, as we see now, look at these three points. Personal schemes will eventually come on view. Number two, all will eventually be exposed. And number three, you have to be careful of those who are operating with their own agendas. But eventually, through the enticement clause, Yahweh will reveal all to the faithful. And it's amazing. Now the inquirer right here in verse 10. And they shall bear their iniquity as the iniquity of the inquirer. So the iniquity of the prophet shall be. So the inquirer is the one who does what? Is the one who inquires of a true prophet. The true message that's going forth is in alignment with the vision of Yahuwah. That's the difference. And the inquirer inquires of the true messenger, but refuses to follow his teaching. Be careful. There's many that will inquire after this ministry, but they will refuse to follow the actual teaching. You'll go, well, why, why do you even, why are you tuning in? You're inquiring, but you refuse to follow the teaching. A perfect example is in Jeremiah chapter 43, where the people asked Jeremiah to inquire of Yahuwah. But then they don't like the answer that Jeremiah brings back, and they accuse Jeremiah of lying. And that's what happens. That's the difference. They inquire... But then when they really find and they don't like the answer that's coming to them, they'll accuse you. This is called the inquirer clause. Scripture is so succinct when you delve into it and can break it down. It truly is. Look at the text as we continue on now in chapter 14, verse 12. We're going to get into Yahuwah's four evil judgments and the righteous trio, Noah, Daniel, and Job, Iov in the Hebrew. Verse 12, and the word of Yahuwah, listen to this, this is so powerful. And the word of Yahuwah came again to me saying, Ben-Adam, son of man, When a land sins against me by traitorous betraying, then I will stretch out my hand on it and will break the staff of its bread and will send famine on it and will cut off man and beast from it. And though these three men, Noah, 
Daniel and Job were in it, they should deliver only their own souls by their righteousness, says the master, Yahuwah. Who's reading this and like, oh my goodness, we've got no hope then, right? Kind of defeating, you're like, well, I'm not as righteous as Daniel. Job, certainly not Noah. But look, we continue on. If I cause destroying beasts to come through the land and they spoil it so that it is deserted. Little side clause here. It's amazing with the social media that we have. There's some insane people in India. No offense if you're from India. But there was a guy this week. It was on social media. He wanted to go take a selfie with a bear. Really? He did. He took a selfie and the bear mauled him. Now, you know we're going to get people writing in saying, I'm from India. and I, Come on. Really, I mean, don't take a selfie with a bear. Now, I've got in trouble before saying things about the South Africans. You know, I'd love to come to South Africa, but I'm not going to this get guy's um, um, game, game reserve. There's this, like, 65-year-old guy. This was in the news this week. In a game reserve in South Africa. I don't know what he was thinking. But he decided to get into the lion's enclosure for some reason. And of course, you know, everyone's got an iPhone, so they had the whole thing on film. The lion did not like it, turned around and charged him. You see him legging it out of there. I'm like, well, I would never have got in there. The lion grabbed him by the scruff of the neck and literally dragged him all the way through, through his little compound. The guy survived. I mean, I do not know what kind of zoology they teach there, but um, I'm not enrolling in those classes. I'm going to stick to the zoology that we've got going on over here. Insanity, because look what it says right here. We know that the beasts of the earth, they, they have since the fall, they're not friendly toward us. Now, at some point, the lion will lay down with the lamb, but it's not happening in India or South Africa, so it's definitely don't try it in the United States either. Sorry, I just, you know, these things come across my, my, my device. If I cause, see, I'm crazy, what can I say? If I cause destroying beasts to come through the land of India or South Africa and they spoil it so that it is deserted so that no one may pass through because of the beasts, though these three men were in its midst, as I live, says the master Yahuwah, they shall deliver neither sons nor daughters. They only shall be delivered But the land shall be deserted. Verse 17. Or if I bring a sword on the land and say, Sword, go through the land so that I cut off man and beast from it. Though these three men were in it, as I live, says the master Yahweh, they shall deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they shall only be delivered themselves. It's not sounding good for anybody but these three. The three, the righteous trio, Noah, Daniel, and Job. Verse 19. Or if I send a plague into that land and pour out my fury on it in blood to cut off man and beast from it, though Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, says the master Yahweh, they shall neither deliver son nor daughter. They shall only deliver their own souls by their own righteousness. That's a heavy drenched text, really. What's Yahweh talking about? He's talking about when a people or a nation 
act in absolute treachery. When they deny Yahuwah, his power, his providence, then he will stretch out his hand against that very nation. Noah, Daniel, Job, they all lived three different epochs, didn't they? They all lived in three different epochs. And they were prototypes, prototypes for the generation of destruction that was about to come forth upon Jerusalem as Ezekiel was proclaiming it to them. They were prototypes from each epoch of the destruction that was about to come upon Jerusalem as Ezekiel was proclaiming it. This is powerful, but they are today, listen, also prototypes for you and I because they are prototypes of the destruction to come upon the final generation on where judgment will visit every avenue of life. It's called the Great Tribulation. And this kind of tribulation... In the end times, it's called the Great Tribulation, and it will cut asunder all three spheres of life. Number one, the nations will be cut asunder, the world as we know it. Number two, our assemblies, our houses of prayer will be affected as we know it. And number three, our families. The family unit is under attack. Can't you see it? Everywhere. Everywhere. Each of these men, Daniel, Noah, Job, saw three stages in their worlds. As we will see three stages of our modern, technologically driven world. Number one, we are that generation that has seen our world completely built. Completely built. Completely built. Number two, we'll see it destroyed. Number three, we'll see it rebuilt. It's called the millennium. Noah saw the world, number one, before the flood. Noah saw the destruction, number two, during the flood. And Noah saw, number three, when it was rebuilt after the flood. Do you see the comparisons of the scripture? Look at Daniel. Daniel saw the world with a, number one, completely built temple, did he not? Daniel saw the world, number two, with a destroyed temple. And Daniel saw, you guessed it, number three, the world with a what? A rebuilt temple. Remember the avenues of the world that will be destroyed? That's what these three men represent. Remember? The nations, Noah, our assemblies, Daniel, and what was the third one? What was the third one? 
our families. Job. Because what did Job see? Job saw the world, number one, with a complete family. Job saw the world, number two, with a destroyed and decimated family. And Job lost everything. And number three, he got a rebuilt family. He was restored to a position of greatness. The sobering impact of this prophetic message will hit the nations. Noah. It will affect our assemblies. Daniel. And it will affect our families. Job. You and I are living in this generation where we get to see the world completely built. We will see it destroyed. We will see it rebuilt. Our assemblies completely built. What do I mean? You and I are the first people in 2,000 years that have the testimony of Yahushua and keep the commandments revelation. We have come into the full anointing of the Malkitzedic, the full building, but there are those that would try and come in and destroy that message. Destroy it. But Yahweh will rebuild whatever man tries to destroy within the assembly. Thirdly, we get to see the complete building and restoration of children. We have families, mothers, pregnant, that have come to understanding. They're not doing the things with their bodies and their children. The previous generations, they're testing things. They're checking things. They're doing their research. We're not just signing on to everything. Doctors and gemologists or gene whatever, those people. The ones that are trying to put stuff in your babies before they're even burned. Born. Gemologists, I totally used the wrong word. Are you laughing at me? That's my wife over here, by the way. Oh, yes, thank you, that word, yeah. Gynecologist, not a gemologist. A gynecologist. <laughs> I'm in very uncomfortable territory here. Okay, I'm in very uncomfortable territory. I'm much more comfortable down the jewelers getting my watch repaired, which I do not have right now, than I am in the presence of a gynecologist. <laughs> I've totally lost my train of thought. You people are crazy. <laughs> Crying out loud. Yeah, I did not... I, that, well, that's where my watch is then. I sent my watch to the gynecologist. That's why it's been gone for a month. I was wondering where that was. Jimmy Cricket. Let's get back into all seriousness. Whenever this is something that I learned back in the church, whenever you get back off track, get back in the scripture. Oh. But Noah did survive the flood. Noah survived the flood. But he couldn't save the souls of his generation. Now, when we look at Daniel, Daniel, he survived the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. But he couldn't spare the souls within it, could he? Could he? And the most heart-pounding of them all, Job survived death clutches. But he couldn't save his children. 
He couldn't save his children. These three righteous men represent, here in our text, the exiles of Jeconiah, but they also represent the last generation living in this world that you and I live with, with the struggles that we face daily in the nations, in our assemblies, and within our families. But we've got to pull together. Because we will overcome the destruction. We will see it rebuilt in all three spheres. But you have got to endure the testing and not align yourself with the false words of others and be tempted and enticed. Because that just exposes what's in your heart. These three men represent... Not only the exiles of Jeconiah, but they represent us exiled in these last days. We have to remain faithful to the calling because we do not want to remain with the likes of Zedekiah because Zedekiah's and those that were remained with him were what? Utterly, utterly consumed with even more wickedness and they would not be saved. Look at verse 22. Yet behold, there shall be left, this is you, there shall be a remnant in it that shall be brought out. I have the hope, you have the hope that we are the remnant that will be brought out of this world. And we seem to be brought out further and further each and every single week because when we go back into the world from our assemblies it becomes harder and harder and harder and hopefully the longing to be in community and fellowship becomes more and more of a draw and it certainly does look at chapter 15 now verse 1 you could spend a whole bunch of time just looking at those three righteous men and their travails can't you can't you And the word of Yahweh came to me saying, Ben Adam, son of man, how is the vine tree more than any other tree or than a branch which is among the trees of the forest? Shall wood be taken from it to do work? Or will men take from it a peg to hang a vessel on it? Behold, it is cast into the fire for fuel. The fire devours both its ends, its middle is charred. Is it fit for any such work? Behold, when it was whole, it was not made for work. How much less when the fire has devoured it and it is charred? Shall it yet be made to work? Therefore, so says the master Yahweh, as the vine tree among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so I will give the people of Jerusalem. Israel, in our text, Israel is supposed to be called a fair olive tree, is it not? Oh, Israel, my beloved fair olive tree of goodly shade and in appearance. That's what Israel is supposed to be called. An olive tree in a pleasant field, even so. A fair olive tree budding forth fruit. But now we see the negative traits, don't we? Of a fruitless grapevine comes fully into view. 
Oh, no, not an olive tree, not a fair tree in a pleasant field, but a fruitless grapevine comes fully into view. And the difference, unlike the olive tree, the grapevine doesn't benefit from grafting. The grapevine does not benefit from grafting, but the olive tree does. So in regard to ingathering, which is the grafting in of the nations, the grapevine fails and is inferior to all other trees. Jerusalem set upon a hill. You were supposed to be for the ingrafting and gathering of the nations. But Yahweh saith this through the prophet Ezekiel, I have made you a grapevine, no good for grafting. All it's good for is the exile and destruction. It's not even good for building. Olive wood could be used for building, but you can't build out of a vine. So the temple would be even destroyed that which was made from the finest cedars of Lebanon. And he is speaking through the prophet these powerful poetic words that if you can just get into it, it's just like, wow. There's no hope for us. Just like Noah, Daniel and Joe. How can you and I compare ourselves to Noah, Daniel? We're done. But no, you forget. The glorious man in linen is our one and only hope. The glorious man in linen is your and I's one and... Don't forget your first love. It's the glorious man in linen. When I didn't even understand any of what I'm communicating to you now, I understood the simple fact of the glorious man in linen. The worker in wood. The worker in wood, a carpenter. And he can exchange the vine tree and use his linen garment for what? Do you know how they would graft? They would take the scion and it would be the cut in the side of the olive tree and it would be called in the Hebrew a scion. It's spelt like Zion. And then they would take a wild tree and it would be stuck into the side, pierced in the side. And then they wrap it in a linen cloth, the man in linen, and they would place the tree with the grafting in a cool, dark place. And within how many days? Three days and three nights, either the grafting would set, take root and be established, or it wouldn't. And was it? Yes, it was. Within three days, he came out of that cold dark place and the linen and he said yes grafted in he laid his blood down on the altar and he said to Miriam don't touch me because he had not yet ascended to the father but within a few days he said to Thomas oh of disbelief stick your finger in my pierced and grafted side and Zion will come forth This is amazing stuff. So our hope, even through the prophet Ezekiel, has always been the man in linen, the worker in wood, who can exchange the vine for a tree and use his linen garment to graft in those of us today in this last generation. He grafted me in. Who would have thunk it? Me? I mean, if you could, I mean, some of you would be like, oh, you could do this better, and and I could. But, You should have seen me 25 years ago. I'm a miracle. You're a miracle. You're a miracle. 
Really? Especially you. I mean, my goodness. I mean, you are a miracle. (laughs) My goodness. This is what our life is all about. The reality of the man in linen that is able to engraft us back in from the exile. This is the reality of what we're dealing in the text was Israel's hopelessness. But also there's a future redemptive blessing. And they're intertwined, aren't they, within this parable. You can feel despondent and kind of depressed. But then you see the blessing and the hope. Because it's always connected to the man of linen that engrafts the final exile. What is the purpose of a fruitless vine growing in the forest? What's the point in that? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Without fruit, listen, I'm going to offend some more people here. I'm very good at it, and I've been having a lot of practice lately. Jerusalem without fruit has no, Donald Trump, no, I know you might love Donald, but it has no practical value. Jerusalem without fruit has no practical value and it is doomed to the flames of exile. Thus saith the prophet Ezekiel. I'm not saying this. It's what Ezekiel said and I'm standing on the word of Yahuwah. And I know you all get involved in the politics and all this and he's like, but hang on a minute. Oh, but we're moving the... the um, embassy to Jerusalem and it's super exciting and everything but Jerusalem listen Jerusalem is doomed to the flames of political exile and spiritual decline it cannot it cannot thus oh he's going to say it thus saith Yahuwah it cannot be used for nation building It cannot be used for nation building. Even the embassy move to Jerusalem cannot be used for nation building. It will spawn like a twisted and fruitless vine, a venture that will fail. A vine cannot be used for building lumber unlike the olive majestic tree. Without the man in linen, Jerusalem is destined for destruction, saith Yahuwah. So don't put your hopes on the embassy move. Don't put your hopes on Zionism. You have to come back to center. And this is where people go, you're a Nazi, you anti-Semite. No, lift up the Jew from Nazareth, my savior. That's not anti-Semitic. It's having a biblical worldview instead of a particularly twisted political Zionistic, which is based in Theodore Herzl's secularism worldview. I've read the Bible so much, as you have, that we have a biblical worldview drenched in the blood of the Savior who is a Jew. You love the Jews. You love the Gadites. You love the Naphtaliites. You love the whole house of Israel and the stranger who is grafted in. It is Joseph's coat of many colors. That is the ingathering of the nations. This is what we're living in today. 
But to get into this crazy political worldview when the Bible view is what we must see for clarity in these last days. Because remember Yahushua's words, because there's still some of you, especially online, will be like, oh, I don't know if I can listen to this guy anymore. But bear with me and listen to the words of the master. Remember what he said in Matthew chapter 21 verse 20. And of course Matthew chapter 24 verse 32. Matthew chapter 21 verse 19 and 20. Now seeing a fig tree by the wayside, Yahushua, he came to it and he found nothing. Nana, zip, nothing at all. Nothing but leaves only, and he saith unto it, Let there be no fruit from thee henceforward forever. And immediately the fig tree just withered away. And when the disciples, they saw it, they marveled. They said, how did the fig tree just disappear and wither away like that? That's amazing. And then in Matthew 24, verse 32, Now, from the fig tree, Yahushua said this, there's a lesson to be learned. Learn the parable. And learn the parable of her. When her branch is now become tender and putteth forth leaves, ye know that summer is nigh. Even ye also, when you see all these things, know that this, even nigh at the very, very door. Verily I say unto you, the people that see this springing forth of this tree, this generation shall not pass away till all these things have been accomplished. Jewish Israel, the modern state of Israel today, is run by a Zionistic clique that was formed by secular thinkers. Secular thinkers under Theodore Herzl in Basel, Switzerland, I believe in about 1871. I have my dates off. But Jewish Israel is trying to run the state of secular Israel, putting forth leaves, putting forth leaves, yet not producing fruits of the kingdom. Why? Because the only way that you can produce fruits of the kingdom is by linking Judah with Joseph. Because Joseph has the birthright. Jacob, who is Israel, the name of Israel was given to Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph. The name Israel was not laid upon Judah. Jews, the Jewish Nation does not have the right to the name Israel only when they link with the sons of Joseph who claim the man in linen would the nation bring forth the fruit and harvest to the final generation allowing Yahushua to rule over them and bear fruit. That's the key. You have to allow Yahushua to rule over you and bear fruit. What happened? And again, I'm, I'm not sorry because I have a particular calling that I must fulfill in no matter what time I have left on this planet Earth. And that is, in the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century, there was an opportunity where biblical Israel could have been brought back to life. 
to allow biblical Israel to come back to life, it would have had to what bring forth leaves for a season. But if it did not bear fruit and link with the man of linen, claiming the name of the man of linen, then it would be cut down and it would remain barren. Luke chapter 19 verse 20, Luke chapter 19 verse 14 and 28, Yahusha has this to say. Those who do not want me to reign over them, kill them before me. Slay them before me. We need to understand the words of Yahushua in relation to the citizens of the state of Israel today and prophecy. Because the state of Israel was given an opportunity with the land, with the people, to produce what? Good fruit and allow themselves to be reigned over by Yahuwah and his glorious son, the man in linen. But they chose instead political Zionism, racism, and liberal democracy. So now we wait for what? For the word of our Savior's mouth to come to pass. Those who don't want me to reign over them, slay them before me, which takes us prophetically to Zechariah chapter 13, verse 8, where two-thirds of those that live in the coastland from Ashkelon all the way through to Tel Aviv and up that western coastland of Israel, two-thirds will be destroyed and one-third will remain and they will embrace the man in linen according to the prophecies. Ezekiel is actually prophesying this in a place called Tel Aviv about the destruction that will come upon the last generation in a different Tel Aviv. That's how attention to detail the father is. Ezekiel was in a place called Tel Aviv, which was a canal off of the river Chebar outside of Babylon, prophesying about an end-time destruction to a place called Tel Aviv, on the coastlands of Israel. And when they named Tel Aviv back in the 40s, they got it from the book of Ezekiel. Did you know that? Isn't that amazing? Yahuwah only knows the end from the beginning. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 1. And again, the word of Yahuwah came to me saying, that's a lot, isn't it? My goodness, I've got to sit down just to process things. Do you ever get like that? This is like penance for me, just to be able to birth it all out. and It really is. It's a whole work every single week, going through the trial, the struggle, and then the birth. And it's, it's amazing. And the profundity of it as well. It really is. Look at the, ch- the chapter 16. Again, the word of Yahweh came to me saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations and say, so says the master Yahweh to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth is of the land of Canaan. Your father was an Amorite and your mother was a Hittite. This, of course, is talking about Abraham. Abraham was from an Amorite, an Amorite land, and it was the Hittites that provided, of course, their burial place for Abraham and Sarah. 
But from the Jews' behavior right here in the text, it's as if they've modeled by the culture of their parents' homeland. A culture of idolatry and a culture of vice, behaving more like Amorites and Hittites in their religious religious persuasions. Look at verse 4, and very descriptive. And as for your birth, in the day that you were born, your navel was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you. And you were not sorted nor swaddled at all. No eye pitied you to any of these to you to have compassion on you. But you were discarded and thrown out into the open field because your life was despised in the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. This is amazing. And all the pregnant ladies are squirming in their seats, right? Brings it very close to home, doesn't it? But allegorically here, the birth of Israel as a nation in Egypt is likened to the birth of a girl born without supervision. Born without supervision. Israel was totally left to their taskmasters until they cried out for their creator, El Shaddai, El Shaddai! The only way Israel thrived from 75 persons to a mixed multitude of millions was because of Yahuwah's mercy. Not only was that infant Israel neglected, it was abandoned to a tyrant. It was abandoned to Pharaoh that knew not Joseph and ordered the slaying of the very infants in the open fields. Did he not? You see how this builds and builds. Yahweh is very descriptive here. I saw you wallowing in your blood. In the red clay and mortar from which you made bricks. I saw you wallowing in it. The blood of the red clay and mortar. I saw your affliction. And I showed you mercy, saith Yahweh. And I gave you deliverance through the hand of the prophet Moses. Through blood. Through the blood of the plagues, I gave you deliverance. Through the blood of the Nile, I gave you deliverance. And finally, I took you to the mountain. And through the blood of the book of the covenant, I establish your deliverance throughout your generations forever. But no, your heart was still full of the idols of of Egypt. Your heart was still full of the idols of Egypt. And though I delivered you from your blood, not once, not twice, not thrice, but four times and established you in a covenant, the book of the covenant in Exodus 24, you still had a heart for idolatry. This is what the prophet's declaring. Look at verse 7. And I caused you to multiply like the bud of the field. And you are grown... You are great, and you have come into the finest ornaments. Israel, fully numbered, had grown into 75 persons. Your breasts are formed, and your hair is grown, yet you were naked and bare. And I passed by you, and I looked on you, and behold, your time, the time of love. And I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. Now, of course, the breasts here are... I'm allowed to talk about breasts. How about that? That's crazy, isn't it? The breasts here are a symbol 
a symbol of nourishment. And Israel, on the threshold of the Exodus, they were about to go to Sinai, where they would have been given the spiritual nourishment through the breasts of the Book of the Covenant. They would be nourished by Moses the prophet and by Aaron. It was Yahuwah who took Israel to be his bride and he spread his skirt, his canopy over them where? Right there at Mount Sinai with great thunderings. And I swore to you and I entered into a covenant with you, says the master Yahuwah, and you became mine. And I washed you with water. I washed away your blood from you and I anointed you with oil. And this was all in preparation to receive the covenant in Exodus chapter 19. This is the book of the covenant where Israel was brought into this amazing blessing. It was the consummation of the relationship between Israel and Yahweh at the mountain. And Yahweh anointed Israel as a kingdom of priests, a holy nation, a crown of his glory, a blessing to the nations. And he placed two bracelets upon them, the two tablets in their very hands. Now, look what we'll see in the next verses. We'll see Yahweh showering his beloved bride with Thirteen gifts. He loves Israel so much that he now showers her with thirteen gifts to become royalty, to become a priestly nation. I clothed you with, number one, an embroidered work. Number two, and I shod you with tachash, giraffe sandals. You know that I like shoes. I mean, I'm getting some giraffe sandals. Pass me the phone. No, no, pass Really? Pass me the phone. Outrageous. It's a flip phone, too. What is this, like 1997 or something? Gee, right now. Is that one of those ones you get, like, like a cricket one? You have to, like, give it a buck and last for, like, 10 seconds. Not in the congregation. No more soup for you. Oh, we've got to be careful with those accents. Right? We don't want to go back two years. We're going forward. <laughs> Goodness gracious me. <laughs> Told you I've been offending people. Look at these 13 gifts that Yahweh <laughs> gave to his children of Israel. Number one, I clothed you with an embroidered work. Number two... Hello? I want to know who this is. It is a cricket phone. Outrageous. What are we going to do with this thing? Let's put it over here. No, you, you man it. You man it. Turn it off. Right, let's start again. Can we cut that? Go back to the beginning. Oh, you do make it hard work sometimes. <laughs> it's going to get... Thank you. Could you please confiscate the phone? His young daughter is now exiting the building. 
want me to remember this. I clothed you, number one, with an embroidered work. And I shod you, number two, with giraffe sandals. Number three, and I wrapped you in fine linen. Number four, I covered you with silk. Number five, I adorned you with ornaments. Number six, I put bracelets on your hands. Those are the, those are the mitzvot. And number seven, a chain on your neck. Look at the gifts that Yahweh was bestowing upon his bride at the mountain. Number eight, I put a ring on your nose. Number nine, earrings in your ears. Number ten, a beautiful crown on your head. Number 11, you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen, silk, and an embroidered work. Number 12, you ate fine flour. And number 13, and honey and oil, you were exceedingly beautiful. And you advanced in regal estate. You became a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. But here... Here the story takes a perverted twist, does it not? Remember how we started out in chapter 14, verse 9, with the enticement clause? Remember? Remember that? Yahweh tested his bride in the delaying of Moses, didn't he? There's your enticement clause from the very beginning. There's the test that led to temptation. There was the enticement clause. Yahweh tested his bride in the delaying of Moses. And Israel fell in her pride and the futility of her heart and the deception and wickedness of it by falling for the sin of the golden calf and ensuing destruction and then the covenant breach occurred. And if you're not aware that we live in a generation with an enticement clause, then you might be tempted to fall and succumb. You have to be aware that we live in a generation with an enticement clause. We do. It's a spiritual reality. We live in a generation with an enticement clause where testing and delaying is the purpose of Yahuwah to prepare his saints for the great tribulation and the second coming of Messiah. But if you can't endure, you will be tempted and you will fall. The book of the law was placed upon Israel. Because they were tempted and they fell. It was placed upon them. And then we had the construction of an earthly tabernacle put in its place. It was undertaken. They started to construct the tabernacle at the fall. And it was here where the corruption of the priesthood and the temple was born. Of which now Ezekiel is Addressing. So do you see what he's doing? He's taking it all the way back to its point of origin. And that's what we do as ministers. I want to know, what's the point of origin? You know what the point of origin is? Your heart. You were tempted. You succumbed. Instead of understanding the enticement clause, you were tempted. You listen to the words of others. But there's always hope if you come back to the man in linen. 
But we are a shepherding ministry and we need to be equipped in these days and these generations to continue to endure. And I put my hand to the plow and I will not look back no matter what comes. I will stay true to my calling and I will discard all those things that I am not called to do. And you must do the same, which is what we were talking about today earlier, which is empowering, isn't it? Man, it's empowering. To get back to the vision, to get back to our roots, to get back to the foundations of the faith and our first love. That's where the power of the anointing is. But we know that Yahweh bestowed 13 gifts upon Israel. They did not embrace them properly because they could have been, but they were not. They could have been a royalty and a priestly blessing. Now... Look what Israel does with the gifts of Yahuwah. And this is the heart of the matter. This is really the heart of the matter. No matter what you and I try to do, don't ever, don't ever get it in your thick skulls or my thick skull that we can ever repay Yahuwah for what he's done in our lives. There is nothing that you and I can do. Don't ever think that you can ever repay Yahuwah for your redeemed life. It is a gift. And that is mercy. Walk in it. Live it. Proclaim it. But don't ever get into this twisted thinking. Exodus chapter 25, verse 3. What did Israel think? Oh, well, you know, we're, you know where Yahweh gave us 13 blessings when he betrothed us? Well, let's pay him back. Then we're all fair and square. Then we can kind of live how we want to live. We're paying back. We'll give him 13 things right back, right? Good idea. No. Exodus 25, verse 3. And this is the offer, offering which ye shall take of them. Gold. Number one. Number two. Silver. Number three. Brass. Number four. Blue. Number five. Purple. Number six. Double scarlet. Number seven. Fine spun linen. Number eight. Goat's hair. Number nine. Ram skin dyed red. Number ten. Blue skins. Number eleven. Incorruptible wood. Number twelve. The oil for the light. Number thirteen. Incense for the anointing oil and for the composition of incense. And the Levitical high priesthood and the priests believed that they could pay Yahweh back for his great work of betrothal and that they could just keep on doing whatever they want and that their sacrifices, their religious piety and their Pharisaic worldview was paying Yahuwah back for their redemption and that was the fool that Ezekiel is now pronouncing upon their twisted thinking twisted thinking robs you from ministry ministry is destroyed through a corruptible and debased mind you have got to purify your thoughts daily and realize we live in a generation with an enticement clause and overcome. Be more than conquerors. Be more than conquerors. Israel had become so twisted in their thinking and corrupted with idolatry that they considered 
they considered these 13 materials that they donated to the construction of the tabernacle as repayment to Yahweh for the 13 gifts that he gave them. Wow. How could you get to that point? Because it was always in your heart that you were never, ever truly turned. They truly believed that they were fair and square with Yahweh. They had no fear of Yahweh pertaining to the living, saving quality of the book of the law and the Levitical priesthood. Ezekiel deals with the consequence and their entitlement theology. I'm sorry to say this, but I'm not. We live in a generation of believers who are being taught entitlement theology from the pulpits. Well, you have Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead. You have entitlement theology. It came at a cost. It was not free. It is not free. It cost him everything. Therefore, be good stewards with the gifts that he's bestowed upon you. And if you love me, keep my commandments and go and spread my word to all nations, all peoples, all tribes. And that's what we're doing. We're an equipping ministry. Equipping you, equipping me, equipping all of you out there to go in your communities and walk in your callings. That's what we do in this end time message goes forth and it is powerful. But we have to awaken to the scriptural reality of the days that we live in. And we have to be more than overcomers, don't we? This message, this scroll, this vision, it hits me Big time. It hits me deep. It truly does. And the poetry and the strength of the language and the surety of the word is truly, truly a comfort to my soul. As you all are in supporting this ministry through thick and thin. I thank you. I thank all of our supporters online that are so, so good to this ministry so that we can continue to do what we need to do, which is teach the Torah to the tribes in these last days. Praise Yahuwah for his people and for the redemption that we have. Amen? Amen.